Hello and welcome to the EQI podcast, Voices on the World of Work. This podcast from the European Trade Union Institute offers new perspectives, debates and conversations about ongoing research and education on social Europe, workers' participation, health and safety, the wider labour movement and the world of work. This is E2I Podcast. Hello and welcome to E2I Podcast, Voices on the World of Work. This is episode 8, Privacy in Times of COVID-19, the case of content tracing apps. I'm Elisa, Communication Officer here at DHY, and I'm your host for this E2I podcast series on Voices on the World of Work. Today, I'll be joined in by Aida Ponce de Castillo, Senior Researcher in the Foresight Unit. Hi, Aida. Hello, Elisa. How are you doing? Yes, very good. Here, working uh, from home. Yeah, me, me, me too. And how, how are you settling in? How is your rhythm going? It's okay. It goes <laughs> up and down, <laughs> I guess, like many people. Yeah, and now that we are uh, officially in phase two here in Belgium, the weather is awful. So uh, we have had uh, two beautiful months, but uh, voila. Now that we are officially in phase two, uh, the weather decided to change. Um, well, today we talked to you, Aida, because um, you are... Um, you just released a new uh, policy brief on uh, COVID-19 content tracing apps, how to prevent privacy from becoming the next victim. Uh, so we thought it uh, could be a good idea for you to tell us a bit more about uh, why talking about content tracing apps and what basically are you suggesting and are you writing in this policy brief? Right. Well, I think that the contact tracing apps and contact tracing in general, it's a topic that was very uh, emerged very quickly uh, when the pandemic started. And uh, I think it's important to understand it from many perspectives, from the privacy perspective, what it means for workers and what it means for the world of work and for unions. Uh, because with that topic, Every day there is a new app or a new news that is uh, announcing an app. And I think, uh, yeah, that people need to know what the implications of this app are. So basically, Aida, just maybe uh, to introduce in the subject, uh, I forgot to mention. So contract tracing apps, we today are talking about the apps, uh, the applications, the mobile applications that either governments or uh, businesses are releasing and putting uh, on the market for citizens and or employees to use to prevent the transmission of COVID-19. Right, right, that's correct. Okay. Yes. So, and what are you suggesting in your policy brief then? Uh, what are the main points? Well, the main point is that uh, contact tracing can be useful if and only if certain requirements are really met. Because this is about protecting, pe protecting people's health, but also protecting people's privacy. And mm -hmm. they, contact tracing apps work only if a real majority of people use them. And here, majority, I mean more than 40, 60 percent. These are the figures that are given by governments. And uh, these can people can we can use them only if governments 
ensure that they feel confident about using them in a privacy setting. And if they, if people know that the personal data and all the sensitive data won't go away uh, being sold or being uh, without use without care. This is the only uh, requisite that that are going to be useful if, if we want to, to, to have contact tracing apps to be effective. To be more precise, uh, can you give a definition of contact tracing apps? Uh, yeah, well, sure. Uh, first of all, contact tracing is not a new term. It's not a fashion term. It has been used uh, by the public health uh, science already for many, many years, and it's a tool that uh, it's used when there is a virus to that it's it's about identifying people so basically it's uh, health officials go and interview the people who are infected they identify with whom they have been in contact with in the in a couple of in the previous weeks or 21 days they make a list of those people with whom the patients have been in contact and they inform them that they might, um, that they have been in contact with a patient who is now sick of uh, COVID in this case, and they, that, need, that these new people, these contacts needs to have a follow-up. They just are informed and they need to know what to do, whether it is to be uh, 14th in quarantine or just monitor the health um, symptoms or make a test. So that's contact tracing. And normally it's done manually with a notebook and with a list and a pen. Now, uh, companies have suggested to make this in an app and that the people, uh, normal citizens, do it by themselves or automatically with an app where the data is going to be stored if used by Bluetooth centrally. If not, what, which has been the case in the Asian countries, their data can be stored in the databases that the government has made for these purposes. So that's basically contact tracing. So uh, in the past was done manually. Now they are replacing it with a mobile application. Uh, they are different. In your policy brief, you're describing different um, approaches, uh, at least four. Uh, also mentioning, you mentioned also now uh, the case in the Asian countries. Uh, can you describe a bit the difference between the different approaches that you see arising uh, in the usage and in the development of the contact of this of these contact tracing apps? Sure. Um, well, it was very interesting to see how these apps were developed first in South Korea or in Singapore. Also, Taiwan has an, an interesting model and how they were um, um, kind of uh, redone in the, in the Western countries. So, for example, in South Korea, they have a self-quarantine protection app where all the data is gathered via GPS technology hmm. and the data is gathered by the authorities, the Ministry of Interior and Safety, and uh, the, using this GPS to monitor and track citizens and to ask them to self-quarantine. And in case the citizens do not uh, ob uh, obey to these measurements, then they will face either fines or imprisonments. It depends. Um, okay. Then the case of, of Singapore, it's different because Singapore developed 
an app to trace people using Bluetooth. And this uh, system, it's about, it's called Trace Together, and it's exactly uh, what we, we kind of see in other uh, countries when mobile phones exchange the identifiers of the Bluetooth, and then uh, it um, stores locally all the Bluetooth things that you have in touch with in the past days. And this is the, uh, the difference between the Singapore app and the South Korean app in, in big, in big uh, yeah. So <laughs> differences. So, yeah, absolutely. So basically, in South Korea they use GPS. In uh, Singapore they use Bluetooth. Uh, in South Korea they use the GPS and it's stored in the government uh, database. And in Singapore, uh, it is basically uh, phone. It is basically using uh, Bluetooth technology, uh, and it is also managed by the authorities then. Yes, it's also managed by the authorities. Why do I put these two cases in the policy brief? Because in both cases, the data of the people were centralized by the authorities. Mm. And it was very interesting to see how people were traced and uh, people were given numbers, like, for example, 600. 600 at 11 o'clock went out to the pharmacy. It had a mm. contact with the mother. It came back to home. And they basically log and monitor all your steps. At what time you went to the hospital, at what time you went out from the hospital, at what time you went from home, how long you went in the, you were in, the, in your home, etc. It but has everything. So, but just to, so basically, this is also... Uh, so those are apps that people download. Uh, am I right? So those are apps that people download in order to be self-tracked. Yes, okay. that's correct. That's correct. And in Europe, so, is, so what are we yes. seeing? So first, of course, people, in order to the apps to work, people have to download the apps, one. Yeah. And secondly, people have to use the app, two. Mm -hmm. There are other, other uh, um effects out of that. In Europe, we see that um, they have, some countries have imported the model of the Bluetooth developed by Singapore, the trace together model, that's what we call it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we see that, for example, one country that more or less kind of uh, imitated the model of Singapore was Poland with self-quarantine apps where um, People who was doing the quarantine had to have a selfie taking every every two three hours. It was a random instruction that came into the app. Notify them, please take a selfie now and send it now via the app. And if you cannot take a selfie, just wave outside because there is a police in standing in front of your window. So that was was that was the the Polish model, for example. But your question then, was uh, how. Yeah. How we, yeah, exactly. we use it in, in Europe. So yeah. very quickly, the European countries saw that this could be a very effective way to monitor or trace the infection. And uh, Poland and Austria uh, implemented it rather quickly. Other countries like Belgium, France, Spain, the UK and Denmark are, are and, and Germany are developing their own apps. Mm. Very quickly, the privacy community started to wake up and to say, excuse us, but 
um, it, there has there are lots of privacy issues and lots of security issues with both whatever YouTube, Bluetooth or GPS. So it's not a straightforward app. It but then be people just implemented like that. Yes. Yeah, but then people might say, and I hear it also in my surroundings, can say, well, but if it, if it is effective to stop the virus and if it allows me to go out and to restart living my life, why not? Uh, I'm going to give up my privacy for it. But uh, it's dangerous, right? Yes, it's very dangerous and should not be a binary choice. Mm. Health for privacy, it's wrong. I don't think that's uh, the, the, the right logic to it. People that are willing, might be willing to, to do that, but not everybody wants to use an app. Many people are privacy aware and mm -hmm. many people just say, sorry, but I don't think I trust an app in order to see with whom I get in touch with or not. It's better to stay home or to keep social distancing, something that people can actually control mm -hmm. but you were saying before so uh, that the privacy community is saying well wait a second there are huge privacy implications so why do you think how actually i'm rephrasing it how are these apps invasive uh in in terms of using them why do you yeah, think they for, are invasive and what are the yeah the things you can tell us about this for example why I think these are very invasive. First, because let's see how it works in practical model. First, you have to have a mobile phone mm. with internet connection. You have to have it on all the time with Bluetooth on all the time. It needs to be fully charged up for Bluetooth to operate. You have to have it with you everywhere you go. If you go to the pharmacy, if you pick up the kids at school, if you um, stay at home, if you go to the toilet, everywhere. So it's a part of your being almost. It's an accessory attached to you. And yeah, it, that's why it's so invasive um, for, it, for it to, to work. So I think it's, um, it could be a good thing only and only if privacy is 100% guaranteed. And what do you mean by privacy? What, what, how would this app need to, what, what are the features they, they might need to have in order to preserve the privacy then? For example, something that didn't happen in some countries, but that can happen in Europe, is that before we have these systems operating, they have, they, there must be legislation passed. Mm -hmm. The parliament yeah. must decide about this. Like, well, okay, if we want to have a public health uh, app, let's vote about it. Let's discuss in a democratic uh, arena how to go about it. It must mm -hmm. be implemented also by authorities. I mean, mm -hmm. I know that there are lots of people uh, with goodwill trying to develop the best app and the best groups in academia and so on. But at the end of the day, this is a public health matter and a, an mm -hmm. authority has to take responsibility of this rather than mm -hmm. private corporations. It must be well documented in a in the security system. Uh, all these apps have flaws. Everything mm -hmm. can be hacked. People can get into your Bluetooth and steal your data. So, what is the security behind this? Mm -hmm. uh, it has the code and the ways uh, they program the apps. They have to be uh, quite transparent, so we know what the technology behind it. 
it must be proportionate. I mean, not if we use this art, it has to have a duration in mm -hmm. the in the limited period of time, mm -hmm. and only with a very leg legitimated reason because we are in a pandemic and because we need to protect people. Mm -hmm. um, it's purpose limitation. It has to be decentralized, of course. Uh, mm -hmm. Otherwise, uh, we can see uh, one of the issues, the main issues is once the data is centralized in, in an organization, then it's very easy to, to, to share that data, yes. to discuss mm -hmm. the data, and then it goes unlimited. Mm. The issue about anonymization is also a requirement that I describe in the policy brief. It's not so easy just to encrypt and anonymize as if it was a piece of cake. It's very difficult. And we know that we can cross-reference data. So the data mm. that... Uh, and then, uh, of course, authorities or corporations might know who is who and yeah. who does what. So that's why it's very... Um, those are the more or less major privacy requirements that any contact tracing app absolutely must guarantee. Now we've been talking only about uh, contact tracing apps uh, developed by governments, but uh, there are also private companies, for instance, Google and Apple, working on this. Um, what are the implications? Exactly. That's the question. What is the implication of such major corporations telling us how to do, do contact tracing and under which of their conditions. So Google and, App are not, Google and Apple are not doing an app. They are doing an API, which is a uh, framework that uh, allows uh, operators of Apple phones and Android phones to, do, uh, to make some applications, some apps. So basically they came together in a, uh, uh, this, rivals, so to speak, came together <laughs> to see, okay, uh, in order to make your life easier, uh, let's make um, a framework so you can build on your app, uh, particularly government for governments and so on. But that means it's, it's a rule of the game. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it's a game in which governments can play. Um, By setting the framework, they also set the, uh, the um, yeah, by setting the framework, they set up their own rules uh, by which then governments who need to build the app need to respect. Exactly, was, something like yeah. that. Something like that, yeah. So um, I, don't, yeah. I don't know whether this is legitimate. I don't know whether this is, this is fair for society. So those are the questions that we need to, to think critically with our privacy and data protection minds and... Mm. Um, Indeed, and uh, well, in your policy brief, it was also mentioned that you've been that you've been working on a living map of tracing apps. So, uh, basically, like a sort of a yeah a table um, where you try to compare and put out there all the different uh, applications that have been developed that they are being developing by governments, private companies. Uh, um, are there any initiatives uh, that you want uh, to mention, for instance, uh, happening at the workplace? Sure. Well, in this chart is what we try to do is to collect almost everything that is emerging out of these apps to see 
where the go the world is going, which direction certain continents are taking towards contact tracing. We see, we saw the lesson from Asia. We're seeing how it is taking uh, form in Europe, but it's also America and Latin America are also taking different approaches. Mm -hmm. That's for citizens. We shouldn't forget that contact tracing apps could be very useful at the workplace. Mm. And this could be an opportunity for some employers to put out their own contact tracing apps to monitor their workers. Yeah, for I instance, think... in Belgium, yeah, in Belgium, the port of Antwerp just launched the use of uh, wristbands. Uh, it was in the news, uh, very positive news, uh, saying, "Well, the port of Antwerp is uh, is uh, allowing its employees to go back to work uh, in order to prevent the spread of the virus. They are giving uh, wristbands for free to their workers." Um, but this, I guess, have, has huge privacy implications, right? They have the same privacy implications than the normal contact tracing apps for citizens yeah. with a plus. With a plus because private citizens can, uh, normal citizens can say, I don't need it. They can opt out. Mm -hmm. Workers in a contractual employment relationship, they cannot just opt out. Mm -hmm. You cannot just say to the boss, sorry, I don't want to use it. Well, that's the caveat for contact tracing apps in, uh, in the workplace. I think that they could be very useful only for those workers who are really at risk, who are at the front front of the, of the risk, for example, nurses, for mm -hmm. instance. But I mean, these are very specific cases. The problem here is that if we are used to implant or implement the contact tracing in the workplace, where workers cannot just say no, because mm -hmm. otherwise they can get uh, negative consequences, we might be entering into a domain that we might not be easy to get out that easily. And they have huge implica implications. Besides the privacy implications that we described before with the normal contact tracing apps, there are also other privacy implications for workers. Mm -hmm. for example, Such as? Yeah. For example, I think that if the employer wants to implement the contact tracing, they have to have absolutely the informed concern of the worker. And I don't know whether this is going to really happen. Mm -hmm. They have to have the trade union negotiating the app and the DPO also negotiating the app, mm -hmm. um, collecting the worker's data. It's hugely sensitive because it's not only uh, worker's data, but it's their health data. Mm -hmm. So what is the employer going to do with it, with that? That's that poses a huge question. Uh, exactly. Both in 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 with a click. Exactly. And you mentioned before the trade union. So what what can the unions do at the workplace then to protect workers' uh, privacy? Because this this is just an example of the port of Antwerp, but we could see now when phase two is starting that uh, other types of measures could be maybe not as uh, futuristic uh, as the uh, wristbands, but other uh, sorts of uh, invasion in uh, workers' privacy could uh, yeah could be put into place. What could unions do? Well, they have to be very aware that these measures can just be softly implemented, invisibly implemented in the workplace with the um, excuse of protecting health of workers. 
So they have to spot it ra rather rapidly. They have to be at the table of negotiation, cannot um, allow to implement the apps because it's new technology at the end of the day without their uh, negotiation. They have to have risk management. This is really basic. And this is one of the GDPR mm. requirements for any yeah. new use of technology. There has to have an impact assessment of the risks and trade mm. unions have to be there because they know the risks of the work of the workflow and they know the risks of further surveillance at the work uh, at work. Mm. Um, these workers representatives have also to talk to the data protection officers to see what are the real privacy implications of the apps? Because I can imagine that the port of Ambert has certain working conditions that perhaps a warehouse of Amazon doesn't have, yeah. where actually Amazon is also another case of contact tracing apps uh, being used to track workers. So different workplaces have different specificities. And this is what unions have to be very well, well aware of. The most important thing is that if unions allow these contact tracings to happen, I think that it will create a state of hyper-surveillance that is going to be very difficult to stop. So once implemented, then it's difficult to go back to, to normal. This is what you say. This could trigger new, uh, a new way of working. Yes, This absolutely. is what you're implying. Okay. And actually, uh, this reminds me that, that Aida, we could say this into, into this podcast for, uh, for our listeners, that uh, we will have soon with you um, a uh, podcast on the usage of uh, basically how COVID-19 and the crisis is uh, incrementing uh, the use of AI at the workplace and in general uh, that we see this kind of innovations happening also, innovations, not often uh, in the positive sense, but uh, happening at the workplace, right? We are, we are going to do that. Sense. Yeah, we are yes, going to do absolutely. that. Uh, now, a last question that I wanted to ask you, uh, we could, because, well, we, we've been hearing a lot about contact tracing apps, but... Uh, once one could imagine, well, but we live in Europe, you know, Aida, uh, we are privacy aware, uh, we have all the different uh, data protection, uh, we have the data protection framework at the European level, the GDPR, then we have uh, different uh, data protection uh, authorities uh, at the uh, national level. Isn't this enough? Or... Is, is is should we should we as citizens and and, and as workers be worried, uh, or are we living in a, in Europe in a safe space? I think for data and data protection and AI and there is no border. Mm. We know well, very well that we might be having very good data protection laws thanks to GDPR and other forthcoming uh, regulations, but some of our data is stored in the US or in India or who, who, who knows where. Mm -hmm. So yeah. thank, thank, we have a good um, um, framework, but we cannot forget that the world has no borders in the cyber realm and that uh, this implies everybody equally. Mm. So, yes, we should be concerned. 
Yes, okay. But in a positive way. <laughs> but in a positive uh, way, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I absolutely. And I think uh, people might really need to have a look at your uh, policy briefs, especially uh, uh, trade unions and trade union representatives, uh, because uh, this is not only coming uh, uh, at government level, but this also then coming in our uh, workspaces. And uh, as uh, the Trade Union Institute, uh, we are informed trade unions and so please just read the policy brief of AIDA uh, there will be a link uh, in the podcast itself and you can find it on the uh, on our website now uh, last two questions for you AIDA uh, do you have a good news to share with us sure we are uh, finishing with the confinement and I think that people are a little bit more privacy aware which is a really great news yeah, how do you see that the people are more privacy aware? Or are you noticing something happening around you or Yes, or my friends and my contacts they, they they ask what are these apps? What about my data? Who ha- what is my health data? They start questioning and this is really positive. Yeah. I I see it too from the people around me. Yeah, maybe this this could be a good trigger for uh, yeah. For people to start to understand that basically uh, mobile phones is also means uh, transmitting your data to other companies and to government. Yeah. Good. Now, uh, last question. Uh, what are you doing in this lockdown? How are you surviving it? Well, now we are in phase two, but uh, still not super allowed to go out and only in special occasions and under certain circumstances. But what, what have you been doing besides working? <laughs> Uh, exercise keeps my brain awake. <laughs> <laughs> what 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 kind One of exercise? Sorry. What kind of exercises have you been doing? What kind of sports? Whatever it does does not uh, imply water. Uh, I mean swimming, which is uh, walking, crunches, push-ups, uh, medicine ball. Anything really, pull-ups, something that keeps my brain awake. <laughs> Otherwise, I won't. Be, I won't survive. <laughs> so you basically. So I'm gaining at least three kilos per month because I'm Italian and eating like uh, there's no tomorrow. And you have been uh, losing three kilos per month. That's good. So uh, yeah, exercises is good um, and um, well, a uh, good way of keeping also the brain in shape, I guess. Yes, and also good food is also good for life. (laughs) Aida, it was very, very nice talking to you today about uh, your uh, policy brief on uh, contact tracing apps and uh, the privacy implications, uh, what governments are doing, what private companies are doing, what unions can do in order to be at the forefront uh, at the workplace uh, to uh, prevent... uh, basically employers to use these apps in a yeah, non-privacy, to avoid that we go into a surveillance uh, at, the, at the workplace, basically. Uh, I really invite you all to check out the policy brief. And uh, thank you, Ida. Thanks to you, Elisa. Thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you for listening to ETY Podcast, Voices on the World of Work. Today we talked with Aida Posse de Castillo, Senior Researcher in the Foresight Unit here at ETY. If you like this episode and want to know more about it, check our website, ETY.org. Follow us on social media and subscribe to ETY Podcast on the different platform uh, for uh, podcasts. Stay safe out there. From Brussels, this is all. Ciao, bye-bye.